Hello, friends. Welcome to Wednesday Wake Up, a podcast hosted by Gregory Maloof, Buddhist Dharma teacher in the lineage of Ruth Dennison, mental health therapist, and mindfulness coach. Wednesday Wake Up explores the ancient teachings of Buddhism through the lens of Western psychology, neuroscience, and the modern human potential movement. Our commitment is for these teachings to educate, challenge, and inspire you to awaken to your deepest potential to live a truly fulfilling life of wisdom, joy, and compassion. Thank you for joining us. May these teachings serve you well. I made a mistake last week. <laughs> I'm having I'm having a low bio cycle when it comes to technology these days. I don't know if that's a real thing, but the battery died on the microphone last week. <laughs> And I kind of knew it was going to happen, and I didn't get new batteries, so we didn't record last week's Dharma talk. And, oh man, I have such an aversion when that happens. It's so annoying. <laughs> and I try to be equanimous, but then it's like, so this is how it goes. It's like, you know, because like most of my talks have like a few parts. So like if I don't record one, then there's this whole insecurity of like, oh, but then people coming in, they don't have the introduction. Not that it's a big deal, but like there's this whole aversion that arises. And then there's this like, gosh, why can't I just be better friends with technology? I don't know. I feel like there's something wrong with me. I just can't. I can't keep it together. <laughs> anyway, <sighs> welcome back to Wednesday Wake Up. I wanted to... uh just give a shout out to folks who've been listening on the podcast. There were quite a few uh, downloads this week from Texas. Just wanted to let our folks in the extended sangha know that our hearts go out to you. Even if you're not in the immediate location of the school shooting, we know how that is to be in proximity to violence and uh, tragedy like that. So I just wanted to give a shout out to our friends in Texas who are downloading this week and uh, say those who are joining us would like to just offer some loving kindness to y'all. It was interesting how this came to my mind. I was thinking about the uh, the shooting in Texas in one of my meditations, and then when I got on, I don't know, some kind of news media of sorts. Oh, after the holiday weekend. That was it. After the holiday weekend. 13 more shootings since that last one. Man, my heart feels uncomfortable with that. Not sure how to respond. I feel overwhelmed. And I don't know, not hopeless, just lost. Not sure how to respond. So that's what's on my mind. Tonight I did want to continue our... <laughs> that's what I thought. When I thought of the sadness that came up, I thought, keep practicing. <laughs> that was the one thing that grounded me was like, okay, I'm going to get back to work. I'm going to keep practicing. I wanted to continue our uh, talk this evening on the Satipatthana refrain. It's what we started talking about last week. And uh, interestingly enough, when I first brought up the topic, I brought up the topic in the context of feeling lost in practice. I had a few, I don't know, months maybe? Weeks? I don't know how long. Long enough to be noticeable where I just felt kind of, my practice felt rote and uh, it felt kind of lost. Wasn't quite sure what to practice when I got on the cushion. And this happens to all of us as meditators. Sometimes we get bored, disinterested, just not quite sure what to focus on. Life gets overwhelming from the outside, and we're not quite sure how to map to match outside energy with our internal practice. So I was feeling that. And whenever that happens, if I can catch it soon enough, I always go back 
to our Satipatthana Sutta where the basic instructions of Vipassana lie and just remind myself, okay, what are the basic practices? Am I doing the basic practices? And can I get my practice kind of back, back on track by just returning to basics? And it always seems to kind of renew my energy and increase my focus. So every so often I like to incorporate that as a context for one of our talks. And so I wanted to just explore these four or five instructions that the Buddha talks about uh, for grounding ourselves in the basics of Vipassana practice. Last week, well, actually what I'll do is I'll read them. I'll read the four. Um, we're going to be talking about uh, impermanence today as one of the practices, but I'll read the, um, let's see, three, four, four that the Buddha mentions. So the first thing that the Buddha reminds us to do is to make sure that we're practicing both internally and externally meaning that we're practicing on the cushion and off the cushion, that we're noticing what's going on inside ourselves and attuning to what's going on in others. So our emotions, other emotions, our behaviors, other people's behaviors, our suffering, other people's suffering, inside, outside. And so that can help us to remind the heart and mind that, okay, if we're feeling out of sorts, what am I feeling? But let's look around and tune in. What are other people feeling? And using a practice that's both internal and external. The second suggestion is to always remind ourselves of the focus of impermanence, keeping in mind that anicca, the arising and passing away of phenomena, is always a good place to land. So that's what we'll be talking about today. That's the second one. The third one is the cultivation of bare attention and continuous mindfulness. This reminder that no matter what is happening in the heart and mind, no matter where our practice is, bringing the wandering mind back to present moment awareness is always skillful. We're always trying to cultivate a continuous samadhi, right? A accepting, loving, equanimous mind that in the suttas referred to as bare attention or bare knowledge, that results in concentration, continuous practice. So even when we're feeling out of sorts, keeping the mind continuously present and working in that way can be fruitful. And then the last one, of course, <laughs> is letting go. The last one is to use our direct experience moment to moment to cultivate non-clinging. We can always ask ourselves in any given moment, what am I clinging to? In this moment, where is the grasping? Where is the thirsting? Where is the clinging? And when we do that, it completely shifts the mind out of the space of ego to the ego's desires, the ego's longings. And that moves us into process. And that can shake up the meditation just enough to be able to get ourselves centered again and feel balanced and on track. We'll talk about that one next week. But for this week, I wanted to talk about arising and passing as a foundational principle in our meditation. And I wanted to talk about two things primarily. One, why is it challenging? And two, what are we actually supposed to be focusing on? This is like a, a really big one. Like when we talk about arising and passing, when we talk about anicca, when we talk about impermanence, now I'm second guessing myself. Did I say equanimity? I might have said equanimity. Impermanence is what we're talking about in case I didn't say that right. Um, so impermanence. So, oh, I guess I'll do this. Let me start with a quote, and then I'll jump into the definition. I like this quote. This quote is from the Dhammapada, and the Buddha says this, 
Better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing away of things is a single day lived seeing their arising and passing. Better than 100 years lived without seeing the arising and passing of things is one single day lived seeing their arising and passing. It's from the Dhammapada. The challenge of impermanence is great for the meditator. It was, in fact, the seed of the Buddha's journey. And there are three things I usually invite myself to remember when I'm talking about this and when I find myself off kilter with practice. One is that impermanence, the fact of impermanence, is a duality. And the duality we're faced as meditators is the fact that impermanence, the fact that things do not stay stable, is hurtful and scary for us. And it's because things change that we can experience freedom, that we can cultivate love, that we can cultivate compassion. And so this arising and passing away of phenomenon is both part of the source of dukkha. It's what we react to that creates a tension and contraction of the heart. And it is also the key to our freedom. The fact that the universe is not stagnant, the fact that our bodies are always changing, our moods are always changing, the world is always changing, that allows us the possibility of awakening. It's because of impermanence that we are capable of cultivating a heart and mind that is free. So there's this push and pull for the meditator. On the one hand, there is suffering caused by our reaction to impermanence. On the other hand, impermanence is the doorway to freedom. Here are a few ways we can look at this. When we think about impermanence, and I, can, I guess I could speak for myself here, oftentimes it's easy to say, yeah, yeah, things change. Of course they do. Obvious weather changes, my moods change, <laughs> jobs change, relationships change. It's pretty obvious on a superficial level and a gross level of reality, things change. So it's easy to be able to look at that and say, okay, I can be aware of that. But when we really look at the meaning of impermanence, the object of meditation is a little bit deeper than that. The, the word anicca actually comes from nicha, right? Nicha, N-I-C-C-A, which refers to something that is constant and dependable. Where anicca means inconstancy or lack of dependability. So it's a lack of reliability. So it's not simply that things are changing. Yes, they are. And that could be annoying at times, of course. But it's the fact that that change causes our existence to be unreliable. It's the fact that that flux causes things to be, um, well, the way the Buddha put it is that anything that's inconstant and unreliable can't provide long-term happiness and well-being. So that's really what the meditation object is. So when we talk about impermanence, there's three things we can bring our attention to. One, the world is in flux, internally, externally. So we can ground ourselves there. But at a deeper level, what we're really saying is that a world in flux is not reliable. There's nowhere to hang our hat, as the Buddhist saying goes. It's not dependable, it's not reliable, and... Something that's not dependable and not reliable is not usually a good source of long-term happiness and well-being. 
So it's all three of those layers that we're being asked to open up to. We're asked to open up our heart to the superficial and gross level of reality of just change. Yeah, things change and we get disappointed in change. We want it to be sunny and it rains. We want to go somewhere and something breaks or someone cancels plans or anything like that. Something that doesn't go our way. And so we understand that. But at a deeper level, what we're really asking is, can we feel in our heart that disappointment in the lack of reliability? Can we really see clearly that anything that's inconstant and constantly changing is not a place that's going to give us long-term happiness and well-being? So those three parts are places we can land our heart and stabilize our awareness. The way I like to use this practice, just practically speaking, is every so often, and usually I'll do this like over a period of a week, like I will focus on impermanence for like my week, but I can also do it just like in daily practice. And the question you want to ask yourself is basically this, in my life right now, what is most in flux? In my life right now, what is most in flux? What is most noticeably changing? Right? And then the, the follow-up question is, how am I responding to this change? Is it my moods that are changing a lot these days? Do I feel like the outside world is changing? Like, you know how sometimes it feels like the world's changing too fast and you wish it would just stop for like 20 minutes so you can like reorient yourself and then press play again and like make it keep going? So you might feel like the outside world is really in flux. So that's something that we'd pay attention to. And it might be that you're having a week or a day where your moods seem to be really in flux, right? That doesn't feel stable. Maybe you wake up on the wrong side of the bed and you feel a little upset or a little stressed or a little depressed. So we want to keep continue to tune in to the fact that internally and externally, where in my life am I experiencing the most change? And what experience is arising out of it? Is there some acceptance there? Is some there? Is there aversion? Is there stress? Are my relationships in upheaval? Is my health taking a particular turn? Um, for those of you who are parents, is there something going on with kiddos that's in flux? Then you have to respond. So it could be anything that's in flux. But a Nietzsche impermanence invites us to ask regularly in my life right now or in this moment or in this day or week, what is most changing and how am I responding? Another way of looking at it that can be a more of an emotional meditation is in my life right now, am I feeling any disappointment? Am I feeling let down? Am I feeling the unreliability of life in some way? And we just search our heart. It's just a mindfulness practice of in, in life right now, where am I feeling dissatisfied? From there, we can move into the lack of reliability and stability of the world. What is it about the world in this moment that you would like to be a particular way, but because the world is not that way in this moment, are you feeling a sense of disappointment? Where can you attune to that lack of reliability in the world? I've been having problems with my car lately. There has been aversion to the lack of reliability of machines. Causes stress. I can notice that and I can watch the fabrication. I can watch my response as I tune into the inevitable Anicca and impermanence of plastic and metal and rubber. And the intention to seek it out, 
that's part of the grounding of the practice. Because it's so easy to like, yes, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a meditator, I'm a Buddhist, anicca, dukkha, anatta. Yes, things are changing. But how often do we just take a deep breath and ask ourselves, in this moment, in this time in my life, what is in flux? Where is the disappointment? Where am I noticing the lack of reliability? That's where we reground in the stability of practice. Another part of this that I always like to normalize. Um, and when I read about this a couple of years ago, I actually felt some relief because what I discovered was that human beings are hardwired to not be comfortable with change. And I kind of feel like that's like, that makes me feel normal, right? Human beings are hardwired to not enjoy things that change. And since everything around us is changing, that's obviously a problem, which is why the Dharma focuses on it so much. The brain is hardwired to resist change, and this is what they found, and this I find very helpful. The, the changing moment, the fact of anicca, even if it's not conscious for you, at a deeper level of the mind, the fact of change puts us in constant contact with the unknown. We simply don't know what comes next. We don't know what's on the horizon. We can sort of predict, but then there's the accident or the illness or the end of a relationship that's unexpected. Part of us knows that a Nietzsche can really throw us a curveball at any moment. And even though at the superficial layer of the mind, the gross level of the mind, we're probably not thinking about that all the time, there is a part of the mind that is in touch with the fact that the constant change of reality leaves us uncertain. We don't really know what's going to happen next. And that uncertainty, the sensation, the Vedana of uncertainty, the brain registers as an emotion of failure. You ever get that experience where you're working really hard at something and it doesn't go your way and you drop the ball and you're like, oh man, like I messed that up. And that feeling of disappointment, that feeling of angst, that feeling that you didn't stick the landing in the deep part of the brain, the brain, that, that feeling is associated with anicca, associated with impermanence. So even if we're not noticing it at the superficial level, deep in the mind, there is a sense of angst. There's a sense of uncertainty that around the corner, something could fail, something could give way, something could be tragic. And so that's where the Dharma really works well because we acknowledge that anicca, impermanence, is something as meditators, we have to keep coming back to over and over and over again. We have to keep grounding ourselves in the truth of impermanence. And if you think about it with Vipassana, one of the things we're doing anytime we're meditating is bringing awareness to the flow of change in this moment, right? This moment is like this. This next moment is like this. This next moment is like mindfulness practice is bringing wakefulness to the flow of anicca. So again, uh, the context is if we ever feel lost in practice and we're not quite sure what to be practicing, remember the flow of anicca always available. In this moment, it is like this. And bringing mindfulness and wakefulness to that stream of experience, that's the purification of mind. That's the healing. That's the grounding. And the longer we can maintain awareness on the present moment, this stream of impermanence, the more healing that takes place. And I'll give you a couple more specifics, but that's the basic idea is that the mind 
really doesn't like it that things are constantly flowing and in flux. One other thing to remember about impermanence is that the mind often registers it as loss, right? This moment is gone. This relationship, gone, right? This habit, this thought, this mood, gone, gone, gone. There's this relationship that the mind and heart has to reality that associates it with loss. We have this sense that we are trying to grip, right? The clinging, the craving. We're trying to grip reality to make it permanent because we are constantly feeling this sense of time passing away, reality passing away. And it's just unpleasant. It's unpleasant to the heart and mind to think that things are not eternal, that things are just arising and passing away. So that's another reason it's challenging to keep our minds on impermanence and equally why we have to do so. So those are a couple ways of thinking about it. There's another thing about Anita, uh, Anicca that I wanted to mention. And that is that there's some subtleties around impermanence that you can ground your attention on, which can be helpful. And you might say that this, maybe this leans into like more mature, advanced practice, but, but not necessarily. It just depends on how, how much samadhi you have in the present moment. One of the things that we attend to with impermanence is we try to look for that moment where something you're seeing as solid suddenly can be seen as composed of a flow, as composed of parts that is actually arising and passing away. So one of the things we're looking for, and part of the reason we sharpen our concentration, is to be able to look at reality and in a moment see its solidity and its impermanent nature. And watching that transition, watching, watching that transition as it happens in real time. That's what happens as samadhi gets more concentrated. As mindfulness comes online, as it becomes more continuous, you begin to see reality arising and passing away all the time, internally, externally, our minds, other minds. And so one of the points of contact that the Buddha encourages us to be awake to is that moment where we can, in fact, bring mindfulness online and look at something as impermanent. So for example, practically speaking, you start to feel anger, right? Or irritation or some kind of aversion. And it's really solid, right? It feels real. It's really annoying. Maybe there's some dukkha around it. And then mindfulness comes online and you're like, oh, look at the anger. It's a set of sensations in my body. Oh, I can feel tension here. I can feel contraction here. That moment just switched on from anger being solid to anger being a characteristic of impermanence. Those moments are moments of freedom. We're looking for that moment where we can see the solidity of reality transform into its impermanent nature using wakefulness. Anyway, that point was we want to look at that as a moment and opportunity to ground mindfulness. Now, another part of this is that the Buddha encourages us to remember that there is an arising and then there is a passing away. And then there's another arising and another passing away. So the instructions are actually notice the arising. Notice the passing as separate phenomena. Because sometimes we're only going to notice the arising. And sometimes we're only going to notice the passing away. You know, <laughs> you know how sometimes you get some kind of pain like 
I don't know, like a toothache or maybe one of your joints hurts or you, you get some kind of pain and you don't ever remember it coming on. It's just all of a sudden there and it's like throbbing for some reason. You don't notice the arising, but then it's there and you're like, oh, wow, that really hurts. That's annoying. And then your mind leans into it and then you're hoping that it goes away. So you're actually focusing on it and then maybe you do notice that it passes, but you don't notice the arising. So the Buddha points out that we can use this impermanent flow to focus on something coming into being and something going out of being. And we try to notice both parts of the experience, the in-breath and the out-breath. You know how it is when you're trying to be mindful of breathing and then a bunch of minutes go by and you've been basically lucid dreaming or sleeping or something. And then the in-breath comes and you're like, oh, wow, I'm very mindful of in-breath. And then your mind wanders before the out-breath and you never, you never catch the out-breath of that moment. That's what we're talking about. The idea is to see if we can use mindfulness to really focus in on the, the upswing and the out, the arising of sensations and the passing of sensations. And the more that mindfulness becomes acute, the more that mindfulness becomes stable, the easier it is to catch both in the act. So that's another thing we can focus and ground our attention on is the upswing and the downswing. One other part of this, which I always found really interesting, is that as mindfulness becomes sharper, and oftentimes, as you know, I've described samadhi as like binoculars or a telescope, that you look through the telescope and you can see what is so, but then you ramp up the power and four times, five times, 10 times, and all of a sudden reality becomes very clear. What is so in the moment becomes sharp and clear and tangible. And what can happen over time, and most of us experience this now and again, just kind of by accident, is that we can notice in the body just a flow of energy. We can notice the metabolic energy that is created through the in and out breath right? This breath energy, as some folks call it, particularly in the Thai tradition, the breath energy, the metabolic flow of energy that can be felt viscerally when we bring awareness to the body. That is considered mindfulness of anicca as energy, as the flow of energy. And if we're not paying attention, it might just be something that's there all the time and we don't even notice. But as our mindfulness becomes sharper, we can intentionally look for the flow of energy in the body. And again, I would suggest like if you're ever feeling off kilter with your practice, you don't know what object to pick, you might just ask yourself, well, I'm just gonna be mindful of the energy in the body. Let me just see if I can find some tingling or some prickling or just some, some energy that can be felt somewhere on the body to reground myself in the present moment. And so we just refer to that as breath energy or the body energy or breath body is sometimes the term, but really it's the arising and passing away, right? It's the arising and passing away at the biological level, at the chemical level that can be felt in awareness uh, through physicality, through embodied being. So that's another aspect of anicca that we draw on is just the flow of energy in the body. And then what we can do is we can grab a hold, <laughs> if we're wakeful enough, we can grab a hold of say our hands or our feet and just notice that moment to moment, they're changing. There's a change in flux of energy, a Nietzsche in the hands, a Nietzsche in the feet or in the face. Again, 
We're practicing with the Nietzsche, but this is at the bodily level. One of the real important things about a Nietzsche is that a Nietzsche is generally speaking considered to be the preparatory practice for not-self practices, right? For not-self teachings. The reason being is that usually when we come to mindfulness and we start as meditators, the world feels very solid. There's us, there's them, there's anger, there's happiness. Everything is very compartmentalized and objectified as things. And as meditation continues, we begin to see that there's a whole process involved in perception, that we're participating in the very experience of what we call the present moment. And the more we meditate, the more we begin to see that the experience of the present moment is a co-creation of reality, that life is not a thing, it's a process, and we are actively participating in that process. And that what we used to call happiness and sadness as something outside of ourselves, we now begin to gain this wisdom through the meditation that happiness is something that's co-created by how we respond to what is arising in the present moment. That sorrow and grief and things like that are actually a participatory experience. And what we're participating in is a Nietzsche, right? The arising and passing away of phenomenon. And what happens over time is that we begin to see that what we thought of as I, I, me, mine, looking out at it, some kind of object, is not so clear anymore. That it's a flow of energy. It's a flow of sensations. And that at an even deeper level, even though it feels like there's awareness back here, like I am the awareness looking at an object that's held in awareness, as meditation gets clearer and the mind gets calmer, awareness itself begins to arise and pass away. We begin to see that not only are the objects arising and passing away in the flow of Anicca, that the very awareness that is holding them is also arising and passing away. And this leads into our experience of not I, not self, not me, not mine. We begin to see that the seer is also in flux, right? It's not a seer and an object. It's object as process, seer as process. It's all in flux. And the way we access that is to focus on impermanence, which is why it's right there again in the first instructions in the Satipatthana Sutta. Grounding ourselves in impermanence helps us to gain the wisdom of not self, to see that having an eye or grasping at an experience that inherently is impermanent creates a, well, delusion in the Dharma, a delusion of self, a solid self that is in fact a Nietzsche. One of the things that the Buddha says about uh, the not-self teachings is that our aggregates, as uh, many of us know, I'm going to list them, five aggregates, form, which is the body, feelings, our positive, negative, neutral sensations, perceptions, how we label things, mental activity, all other mental activity and consciousness. These aggregates are misidentified as self. So we cling to our body. We over-identify with our thoughts. We cling to our emotions. And that clinging and that grasping, that tanha, that grasping, 
creates a sense of I, this solid sense of I. And by looking at the flow of impermanence behind the illusion, that's where we start working in the wisdom of not-self. And they are considered, not-self teachings really are considered to be kind of intermediate advanced teachings. The Buddha didn't teach them right away, if you look at the teachings. But he does teach, be mindful of impermanence. Be mindful of the rising and passing away. And look to let go of that flow of change. And in doing that, slowly we see that all of these aggregates that we perceive to be I are actually seen as an illusion or emptiness of self, empty of self. So it's really important to not underestimate the power of just bringing mindfulness to flow, right? Just bringing wakefulness back to the impermanent changing phenomenon that exists every moment of every day with each breath, with each thought, with each mood, with each emotion, we have access to ground our practice in anicca. Another thing the Buddha says, which I, I still have trouble with because anatta for me has always been such a challenge. The Buddha says that because anything that arises and passes away cannot bring long-term happiness and well-being, it also is not worthy of calling I. Anything that's in flux, that arises and passes away, is not worth creating an identity around, is not worth clinging to. Thoughts arise and pass away. Why over-identify with them? Moods arise and pass away. Why create an unmovable self around them? This is how we move from anicca to anatta, right? So... These ways that I'm mentioning are just various ways where we can quickly reground awareness in something that's easily accessible to get our practice on track in a way that's quick and easy, something that goes back to the very basics of the teachings. And, you know, <laughs> the Dharma is so funny. The Dharma is so simple, but then we make it so complicated, right? Because we wander away from the simplicity constantly. And I always think it's hilarious that as long as I've been doing this, it's like I get lost in my practice and then I look back to the basic teachings and I think, oh, wow, it's been a really long time since I've done that. <laughs> and it's like I've known about it, but for some reason I've let it go. And it, it's one of those things that once you can get comfortable with allowing you know yourself to stumble on the path, coming back to these things, coming back to noticing internal and external reality, coming back to acknowledging the flux and flow of everyday reality, these kind of things can keep us on track. One last thing I wanted to say, just to bring this home. Um, <laughs> Goinka, I whatever I think of impermanence, I think of Goinka G, uh, the Burmese meditation uh, teacher, Ruth Dennison's uh, Dharma brother, I guess you could say, uh, Ubik, uh, under Ubikin. And uh, on one of Goinka's retreats, he, he talks about the benefit of meditating on Anicca is that we begin to see life and death as all part of the same flow, all part of the same flux. And he, he, he tells this joke. He's pretty serious when he tells it, but he says, he says, you know, for the meditator, if you spend your life meditating on impermanence and you really gain the wisdom of impermanence, then even when death comes, you notice that death is coming and you look at it and you say, oh, look, death is coming. It's just another flow of anicca. It's just sensations that are rising and passing away. Now, of course, when you're on retreat with Goinka, you're saying, 
Yeah, right? <laughs> I'm never going to be in that situation where death is at my door and I'm saying, oh, hey, impermanence, how's it going? I'm just going to be equanimous. But the funny thing about it is he says it with real seriousness. He really says, look, meditating on something as simple as impermanence has profound ramifications for how we live. It has profound ramifications for how we die. It has profound ramifications for how we look at happiness and suffering and what our purpose in life is or what our purpose in life can be. So Anicca, never underestimate Anicca. That's the take home uh, for impermanence. I think we'll stop there for this evening. Thank you for your kind attention. Take a few intentional breaths. Let's breathe in a way that relaxes the body, relaxes the mind, and puts us at ease. Notice how intentional, mindful breathing changes your mood and changes your sense of body all at the same time. Co-creating this present moment through our participation. Thank yourself for the practice of today. You could have done anything this evening, but chose to come here and participate in community, in mindfulness. And your presence here supports everyone in this room. Thank yourself for the generosity of being. Being together this evening in grand company of fellow meditators. And once again, as always, we remind ourselves of our highest aspiration that the transformation that we experience through our practice will radiate out to all beings. We'll touch everyone we come in contact with, with the kindness, the joy and equanimity we cultivate. will impact all beings. Let's wish that all beings can share in the benefits of this practice. May all beings be free from harm, be safe and secure.
be free from danger, worry, and concern. May all beings come to know the wisdom of impermanence, the wisdom of not-self, the wisdom of liberation. With all the pain and suffering in the world, all the stress and discontent, we might conclude this evening's practice by answering this question. If you were to wish one thing for all beings in this moment, and know this wish would come to pass, what wish would you offer? May all beings be free from suffering. May you all be well. Thank you so much for hanging out. See you next week. Be safe. Thanks for joining us here at Wednesday Wake Up. We honor the traditional Buddhist practice of offering the teachings without charge. So this podcast will always be ad-free and will never be behind a paywall. This podcast is sustained exclusively by the generosity of listeners. If you've received value from this podcast and have found your life or practice enriched by listening to it, you can support Gregory as a teacher by going to our website, www.wednesdaywakeup.com, and click on Donate at the menu on the top. While you're here at the website, join our mailing list and follow Gregory on Instagram at Gregory Maloof Dharma. Thank you again for listening. May all beings be happy.